Wow. Thank you, Donna. Uh, I'm an alcoholic. My name is Dis. And I tell you, when I first came in this fellowship, I never thought I'd be standing up here today with a 22-year chip. But thank you very much. Uh, I I don't know what I'm going to do tonight. I've got a I, I just my head's been rolling around all day long, and and I think you know. Uh, but my my regular birthday is Monday, May the fifth. My sobriety date is 1981. Uh, my home group is this this meeting here, Saturday night open door speakers meeting, and my sponsor is Tommy Hicks from Crawfordville, Florida. And we've been together since 1995 when Tom Duffy died, who was Carl's sponsor as well as mine. And uh, and when uh, when Donna touched about the teacher will appear, uh, you know, I thought about. Tom Duffy an awful lot because he gave an awful lot of his time to Tom, uh, to Carl and I, and maybe if for whatever we are today, maybe maybe Tom Duffy had an awful lot to do with that. Uh, I always like to thank Alicia uh, for being here. I don't know where she left or not, did she? She always says, "Well, if it's Derby Day, it's Diz's birthday," <laughs> and that's the way she remembers it. And so the first Saturday in May is always Derby Day, and usually that's my birthday, except this year it's two days early. And let me tell you, there is a significance there. Those of you that watched the Derby today may have heard the song they played before the running of the Kentucky Derby. Anybody know what the song was? Old Kentucky Home. You know who that was written by? Stephen Foster. You know what Stephen Foster died of? Alcoholism. Isn't that a crazy connection? But uh, I'm not going to go there. I just, I just, I just thought I'd just reminisce for a little while, and then at the last, uh, maybe the last half hour, I'll tell you how I got sober. But uh, there's an awful lot of people that uh, I'm indebted to that uh, have uh, helped me an awful lot, and. Uh, I was hoping one of them would be here, but then Donna, I mean, uh, Donna, Donna's, Donna's my poster girl. Uh, Holly told me that Kathy wasn't going to be here. Kathy Shelfer was one of the first women that I got the opportunity to sit down with, and we was answering the phones up in intergroup. And uh, I would come in a half an hour earlier than what my scheduled time was to answer the phone so we could just talk a little while. And she would stay over a half an hour so we could even talk some more. Kathy uh, told me about all about her drunker log and about her sobriety. And then uh, after she got to know me a little bit, she told me about her cancer, being a victim, and also about being a survivor. And I think when you can get that personal within a, a man and a woman, that's AA. That's the way I feel. <clears throat> I always uh, I read this book every year, cover to cover. I've done it for 22 years now. Uh, my grand sponsor did that, and uh, because he did it, I thought I should do it too. And I always find something new in there. <clears throat> this past year has been one of the best learning years I've ever had. And uh, a lot of times when I find some stuff in this book, I call usually call Joe because I can get a hold of him real quick, or I call Doug because I can get a hold of Doug real quick. 
and I'll, I'll run something by them that I've seen. And this past year, uh, Nancy's ex-husband uh, was found dead uh, in his home up in North Carolina uh, in early December, and he, he had died uh, uh, on Thanksgiving Day, supposedly. And uh, the uh, cause of death was chronic alcoholism. His, he had a blood alcohol content of something like 2.28 or something. And uh, <clears throat> we have, I have four stepchildren, and Nancy, there's Nancy's kids, of course, and I thought a lot of time I, I kind of laid back whenever talking about their father because I didn't feel I, could, I should really interfere in that. I was always just supportive of what Nancy was doing with her kids, and I never put my two cents worth in about this disease. And I got a lot of secondhand information from Nancy, mostly about talking with her daughter, basically. And, uh, and of course, there's, there was many red flags that popped up, you know. Uh, he had lost his job at the place where he had been working for about 15 years, and that was a big red flag. And the, and the other thing is he... Uh, he was uh, was engaged to a lady, and, and the engage, engagement broke off. There's another red flag. Uh, he started isolating himself and not answering the phone. There's another red flag. And uh, as I always do, when something like that happens, I used to come. I come back and I start reading the book. I just I want to find something just to make me comfortable to kind of calm me down a little bit. And and all of a sudden, I was reading the book and. And this popped up on page 20. It says, uh, Our very lives as ex-profit drinkers depend upon our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. And I didn't say alcoholics. And I got to thinking, I called Joe and I read that to him, and I said, Do I understand that to mean that we're supposed to help people outside this fellowship and be available to them? And Joe says, Yes. As individuals, and I think sometimes we're maybe too secretive, and we don't really let people know that we suffer from this disease, and we may be of help to them. Uh, I don't worry about my anonymity. If if I don't break it myself, Nancy does. And uh, but I think she does it because she she really thinks that I'll be helpful to people. She don't break it just because to be breaking it. And. Uh, and then, you know, there's, everybody quotes that page 77, and, and it also makes it, says a lot of things. It says, our real purpose, our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be a maximum service to God and the people about us. It didn't say alcoholics. It said the people about us. And there again, it got me thinking that maybe, maybe I'm not doing what this book really tells me to do, and I believe in this book. I've had a love affair for this book for about... 21 years. I was telling somebody, my sobriety day is May the 5th, 1981. My recovery date is September 1982. Uh, and the reason for that is because I came in here and I started working this program, walking the steps off the wall. And all I ever had was an off-the-wall program. You know. And I did that for 14 months. You know, so I, I was still a sick individual. Uh, so I think I've been trying to be helpful to more people, not just alcoholics. 
and uh, and I'd like to just kind of encourage you maybe to read this book and find out if that's what you're supposed to do too. And then, uh, like I say, it's been a learning year for me. Uh, I think God uh, really wanted me to get a master's degree in education about working with others. And this past week, he uh, he allowed me to go up to Thomasville, <clears throat> uh, Georgia, and sit with Nancy's grandson, Jake, who had his tonsils out last Friday. And he's three years old. And uh, he had kind of a hard time. They, they reduced, they, they had him out on Friday. They sent him home on Saturday. He wouldn't eat or take his medicine to put him back in on Sunday and kept him Monday and Tuesday. And I really got kind of angry. I really had to say some prayers for those people I, who I thought was mistreating him. You know, and I do, I got three-year-olds I think should be, you know, helped a little bit more along the lines with some other people, especially when it comes to having their tonsils out or something that traumatic. But anyway, I got up there at 7 o'clock in the morning, and his mother left. She started a new job, so she couldn't take off to be with him. And the first thing we got to do is watch Scooby-Doo. And I sit there and thoroughly enjoyed it. And then uh, after Scooby-Doo was off, he grabbed me by the hand and said, Come on, Diz. And uh, he went out, and we opened the door, and we went outside, and we went to his sand pile, or his sandbox. And in his sandbox, we got to dig holes. We got to build mountains. You know, we got to move dirt, I mean, sand from here to there. And then later on, we moved it from there back to here. And, you know, as all the time, it's always the two of us. He gave me his shovel. And he went and got another shovel. He gave me his bucket, and he went and got another bucket. And then after that, he says, it's hot. And we went back inside and says, need drink. And he goes to the refrigerator, three years old, and he reaches up, and he gets this blue Pepsi. And he, you know, takes the cap off. And he's got a great big cup that he got from the hospital, on, and I had a little cup that he probably normally uses. But he filled up his cup with all that blue Pepsi and filled me up about a mouthful. <laughs> you know? And he said, hot. And I said, yeah. So I don't. I just went ahead and drank it, you know. And then he looked over and saw I didn't have it. He said, need some more? And he took his cup and filled my cup up again. And then after we drank that, he said, come on, Diz. And we went in his bedroom. And he allowed me to sit on his chair. And he reached over and he got two coloring brushes. He gave me one and he kept the other one. And he said, we're going to paint. We painted an airplane. We painted stars. We painted houses. We painted about eight or nine different things until he got tired of it. And then we went back out to the sandbox and went through that routine again. Uh, He entertained me the best way he possibly could. And he shared with me every single thing that he had. And I think God's telling me that sometimes we don't do that in working with others. We don't share. I came back and I, Alicia's one of my, I always share with her. And so I, I remember there was a, uh, something I read one time on the internet about everything I know I learned in kindergarten. 
And I went in and I found that and I sent it to Lisa and then we got to talk about it uh, Thursday. We sat down and talked a little bit about, you know, what we could really learn to help other people with. But I really think that God really put me in Jake's day that day just just for me to have a good time. And I did. And I came home and I left at 10 minutes to 6. I'd been there almost 11 hours and I wasn't tired. I just had a really good time. And I came home, and I'd, I'd probably gone up the next day if anybody had wanted me to because it was so good, but I had other things to do. So uh, <clears throat> I stayed here, but I, I really appreciate that day, and I thank God for giving that day to me. Uh, <clears throat> a couple of things that popped up in my head I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to say because uh, I, I sponsor some people, and there's a couple of people that, that uh, the past couple of years have, uh, that I've... Uh, work with that I really think has done a really good job. And I'm not going to mention anybody's name, but uh, one guy came to me about oh, probably a year and a half ago. Or he had about three months for Brian and asked me if I'd sponsor him and that he said he hadn't had much success at, at uh, getting sober at all. He probably had about 26 or 28 white chips. And I said, well, yes, if you want to, if you're just willing to follow a few simple rules, I said, that's all I ask. And I said, if that's it, we'll go ahead and, and work together. And we did. And uh, he, he, he did a good fourth step and good fifth step and went all along. And he, he was getting to his amends and and uh, pretty much I thought was going along pretty good. And then one day he called me up on the telephone and he said, I think I need to talk to you. And I said, well, uh, why don't you come on over and uh, we'll go downstairs and talk. And I said, all right. I thought maybe it's about something else. I didn't really know what it was about. So when he came over to the house, we got a cup of coffee and went downstairs. That's where my office is. Nancy moved me down there two years ago. And that's why I think she got rid of me. Uh, but he came in. He said, I'm having troubles making an amend." And I said, why? He said, well, back when I was drinking and using, he said, I, uh, I was dating this girl. And, I, and he said, everything was going pretty good. And, said, and then she OD'd. And he said, uh, I'm just having a hard time trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And I said, well, there's, there's the, the step itself says to make direct amends. And he said, so? And I said, so, come Monday, come Sunday morning, I want you to put a lawn chair in your truck, and I want you to drive over to the cemetery, and I want you to get out, and I want you to pop that lawn chair down beside her grave, and I want you to tell her everything that you need to tell her. It's the first time that ever happened, and I don't know where it came from. I'm sure that I heard along the line somewhere that it happened. And uh, I think two days later... Uh, I bumped into him, and he said, uh, "He said I really feel good. He said I've, uh, all that burden I had on my heart is not around anymore." And he said, "I really feel like this program is going to work for me this time." And he said, uh, "I think I think making amends is the best thing I could possibly do in order to straighten out my life." And uh, he's coming up on two years pretty soon. Some of you might know who he is. Uh, the other thing I'd like to get, I get, get some emails every now and then. And people want to know where is it in, in the big book or 
or, or asked me some questions. And one of them very interesting this week said, uh, <clears throat> every time I go to a meeting, the chairperson said, we're going to have a moment of silence followed by the serenity prayer. By the time I start doing something in a moment of silence, they start the serenity prayer. And uh, I started laughing. I said, I thought that was funny. And I said, what are you trying to do in a moment of silence? And she said that she was trying to set some prayers for herself. And uh, I said, well, I don't think that's really what AA meant to do with the moment of silence. And she sent back. She said, well, what are we supposed to do? And I said, my sponsor always told me to use the moment of silence to ask God to be into this meeting. And I very simple. She sent me back. She said, I knew it had to be something simple. You know? And uh, she's got six years sobriety, so she's, not, she, you know, she's pretty good at doing that. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, they'll get and ask me who wrote this or who wrote that. And uh, uh, I think if there's anything that I wanted to change in the big book, uh, I think it would be the chapter to wise because I think there's been a misprint there. I think it should be T.W.O., two wives, because everybody's got mostly two wives. Uh, maybe more people would read it if it's titled Two Wives. Uh, one lady asked me one time, she said, uh, get all these great questions. She said, is, is there any song that's actually related to Alcoholics Anonymous? I said, I don't know. And she said, well, what song would you think it would be? And I said, somewhere over the rainbow, way up high, there's the land that we thought of once upon a lullaby. And she said, thank you. And uh, I don't know where all this stuff comes from, but I, I just I just love this fellowship so good. I think that I, you know, when they ask me, and you know, what my opinion is, and I'm going to tell you. And... Uh, Carl says I can have opinions, if you all listen to his 12-step program. Uh, I did, I, I, I am, I do give my opinion a lot of time. One of them I did this year, I think uh, the people that was in the uh, my last big book workshop, uh, somebody asked me what was my favorite book outside of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I said, it's a book that was written by a former presidential candidate, George McGovern, about his daughter, Terry. And a lot of you have gone out and read that book. And uh, I, I think it probably gives us the best lesson of uh, what to do with people and how to work with them and what not to do because George McGovern did everything the experts told him to do, and it still failed. His daughter still died of alcoholism. It's a great book, and I think it, it, uh, there's a good lesson there if somebody uh, ever wants to read it. <clears throat> uh, asked me one time if, if what what changes in meetings would I like to have, and, and uh, I thought of one the other day, and, and I also heard this from somebody else that uh, I think when we tell newcomers to, to get phone numbers, I think that ought to be a two-way street. I think we ought to give them our phone number, and we get their phone number. And if we get a newcomer's phone number, I think we ought to call them at least three times to encourage them to come back. Sometimes we leave these newcomers out there, and it's just like a fish in water. You know, every now and then you got to throw them a hook and get them in. 
And I think uh, I think we need to pay more attention to our newcomers. We're getting an awful lot of them in here. And a lot of them pick up some wrong things to say. And I remember Carl was at a meeting one time, and, and we talked down on the uh, front porch of Cuss, and some, one of the young people in there had said, you know, just work these steps to the best your ability. And, boy, you don't say that to an old-timer. And Carl, Carl said, no, you work the steps thoroughly, precisely, and completely. You don't do them to the best of your ability. That's not in this book. And, you know, that's some of the things I think we get, should get around to the newcomers because I know it's, we can't teach them all. I know that, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy. I guess Carl and I were lucky. We had some really Nazis uh, for teachers. And, uh, of course, most of you heard about my first sponsor, Slick. And Slick was as tough on me as any drill sergeant is on any new soldier. I mean, he really was. And, you know, he would, every time I did something bad, he'd call me a dumbass hillbilly. And, and then, even if I did something good, he'd still call me a hillbilly. Uh, I really didn't think he liked me. I really didn't think he liked me. And yet, when I found he finished all the steps in the program, that was one of the best times I ever had. I'd, be able, I'd go over to his house one Sunday afternoon, and we'd sit there and drink a pot of coffee and just talk. You know, and I tell you, the things you can learn from old timers. And I think, uh, I think that's what you all, the young people ought to do is take advantage of the old timers. Carl told me one time he wasn't going to do the, the 12 step anymore, and I said, that's not true. You got to do it. And he does. He has to continue doing it because there's, there's nobody else that's come around that's going to do it like he does it. And he does it very well. And he, uh, I'm hard on him, too, by the way. I don't know whether he told you or not, but I gave him a birthday card when he celebrated 25 years. In that card, I wrote, you've got 15 minutes to enjoy this, and then you've got to get started on the next 25. And he said, you're a tough man. And uh, I do that lovingly because I do appreciate I love him what he does for this fellowship. And uh, I think we should take advantage of him more often. We should take advantage of, uh, uh, of the old-timers. I, I'm very, very lucky. I've got a lot of people that call me, and uh, people I can call on. John is good. John Work is very good. Doug, Joe. You know, I can go around here and just talk about it. Keith Ann will blow me out someday, Kathy Shelfer. So I get a lot of telephone calls. And believe me, you don't know how important those phone calls are to us, you know. As we get older, we lose more of our friends that we were in this fellowship with. And, you know, it's a dying, kind of a dying breed. And so we don't have contact with those like we used to, so we depend upon you young people, you know, maybe calling us up and checking on us or finding out something. And we do appreciate it, believe me. I never thought I'd be talking like this as an old-timer. I didn't know I was an old-timer until Nancy one time. We went to a meeting. I had 10 years sobriety. And... uh, and there was this meeting, and, uh, and Nan- I don't drink coffee. Nancy does. She went and got a cup of coffee and came back, and she said, uh, see those two girls over there? And I said, yeah. And, uh, you know, I was getting a cup of coffee. I said, I know who they are. I said, well, I said, they were one- this one was telling the other, and I said, that's Diz over there. He's an old-timer. <laughs> and I knew I finally had it made, you know. I was an old-timer, and I could be recognized as an old-timer. Uh, 
I wrote this statement down because I believe it's really true. I said, uh, many people say that AA is believing in God. I don't think that's true at all. Uh, I think it's more believing that you're not God. Sinks in a little while, doesn't it? Uh, and that's what it says in the big book, too. First of all, we had to quit playing God. Uh, the other thing I talked about one time was anonymity down at Koss. And, and uh, you know, sometimes we take an anonymity statement too far and we think we have to be very protective of it, and, and that's not true. You know, in AA, there's no anonymity. My name's Diz Titcher. That's Doug Baggs. That's Carl Armstrong. That's Donna Duffy. We should let people know who we are. A lot of times people go around and say, well, I know a guy named Tim. Uh, Tim, Tim, uh, they don't know his last name. So don't be scared if in an AA meeting to, uh, to tell people who you are. Uh, <clears throat> I don't watch TV too much. Sometimes Nancy and I like certain shows, but it was miserable TV last night. And uh, she went to, took a bath and went to bed. And so for some reason or another, I turned it over and watched uh, Larry King. I do watch him occasionally. I haven't too much lately because I was getting tired of watching war. But uh, last night I had on Dick Van Dyke and Mary Tyler Moore. They're going to be in a movie tomorrow night on uh, on uh, public television. But at the end of the show, you know what they both declared? They both remembered somehow Alcoholics Anonymous. And they both gave praise to the fellowship. And they thanked AA for all the help that they've given millions of people. Isn't that amazing? They didn't protect their anonymity. You know, it's pretty good. Uh, I had, uh, like I said, I'd stumbled around for 14 months in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, uh, there would be many times when somebody would be sitting at a table and somebody would walk by the table and point down just like this to me because I wouldn't get anywhere at all. And I went to a meeting one night and and uh, felt a tap on my shoulder. And when I did, I turned around and looked, and there was this old man standing there. And he said, your name Diz? And I said, yeah. He said, my name's Slick. And he said, I'm your new sponsor. <laughs> and I said, uh, who said so? And he turned around and he pointed and he, there was three guys standing over there, and he said, uh, those three guys over there, he said, we drew straws, and I lost. <laughs> and the, uh, I later found out that those three guys over there, one was Earl Dominic, had 38 years, Red Davis had 33 years, and Carl, uh, I'm not Carl, Clarence Pritchard had 29 years. So there was over 100 years sobriety in those three guys over there. And I don't know why I, I didn't get arrogant like I probably would any other time. I, something just came over me. I thought, maybe I better pay attention to what this man's doing. And I really don't know why, but I, I said, well, okay. And he said, well, he said, I live at so-and-so and so-and-so, and he said, I want you over at that house on this Sunday at 2 o'clock. I said, Okay. I had to look it up on a map to find out where he lived. And uh, at 2 o'clock, I was over there, and I parked in front of his house. And he came out and opened the, met me at the front door. 
and he opened the door. And uh, we went in the kitchen. He had a pot of coffee on, but he had an old porcelain kitchen table. Must have been 70 years old then. And uh, so that's where we sat at that porcelain table. And that man at that time had 22 years sobriety. And he started spoon-feeding me this book and everything in this book on that Sunday afternoon. And probably for the next year, we met him every other Sunday. And he would spoon-feed me this uh, everything in this book. The uh, He started taking me through the steps, and along the steps he would explain everything to me. And he was an old newspaper man. He worked uh, for the Winston-Salem Journal, and his notoriety was that he covered one of the largest murder trials in North Carolina history, and that's the, the Smith... Uh, Camel cigarettes. Smith Reynolds' death. He was uh, he was murdered, and they had a big trial, and he covered it for the AP and the United, UP. So, one of the things he used to do, he used to really just stand over top of me. But he, had, because he's a newspaper man, he always had ink on his hands, so he had a habit of standing, and he would stand like this, and he'd stand like that when I was at sitting at the kids' table and just look at me. And I, that was just you know very demeaning. Especially, you know, alcoholics are sensitive, and I certainly was. Uh, but we talked about step one, you know. He said, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And I learned this from Ian, too, by the way, afterwards, because Ian broke down the word admit. You know what the word admit means? To let in. He said, if you go to the theater and buy a ticket that says admit one, so that ticket will let you into the whole theater. Don't put you in a projection booth. Don't put you anywhere else. Put you in the whole theater. Uh, when Abby Thacker called on Bill Wilson, you know, to try to give him this program, Bill was just couldn't believe it because he, you know, he, that Abby was sober. He just couldn't believe it because Abby was the worst kind of drunk. He was a lot like us especially me. And, uh, but as Abby was giving, trying to give Bill the program, Bill noticed one thing about him. And it's on page 11. It's always in this book. Everything is in this book. It says, here was something at work in a human heart which had done the impossible. You know, I didn't say that he was doing all this in his head intellectually. He said, here it's something in a human heart. And then, uh, if you really read what the first step says, it says that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholic. There's no definition of innermost in the dictionary. You know, the only thing I could even think about that had the word inner in it was, the, like, was inner tube. And you know, an inner tube goes around the whole tire. Just don't go in a portion of the tire. And I said, okay. And then there's another statement in here on page 25 that says the central fact of our lives today is, that, is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. And so 
Slick said you don't work this step, first step in your head. That's where intellect is, and that's where self-will is. And self-will won't keep you sober. He said you've got to work this first step from your heart. That's where your emotions are. And that's where you can accept things. If you accept this program in, a, in your heart, there's another positive thing that may happen to you. Something traumatic might happen to you. could be the death of a loved one. could be a divorce or something like that. If that happens in your life, you can accept it because you can accept it from your heart. If you try to do it intellectually, you might go get drunk over it. And so I believe that you got to work the first step in your heart. And I want to thank Slick for giving me that. Came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore us to sanity. I had a lot of tough with that. I mean, I had a lot of tough time with that. I had uh, attended church regularly as a Presbyterian. Uh, fairly regular. I don't mean every every day. Uh, I was uh, a Sunday school teacher. I was an adult advisor to the senior fellowship. I sang in a chorus. And one year I served a three-year period as a trustee. And I did every single one of those things. And, you know, I never got any closer to God than what anybody else would in that situation. And I look back on it today, and I think the reason for that is because I wanted to, I thought I should get something in return for all that I was doing. And that's not the way this program works. You know, I didn't have any kind of relationship with the God because I wouldn't allow it to to happen. I wanted something else out of it. And so I had a lot of problem uh, with step two. And But I told Slick, I said, okay, uh, I'm going to believe there is a higher power, and I'm going to believe that that higher power is going to restore me to sanity. At least I was about 60%. That way. Uh, and I was a traveling salesman at that time. And uh, one time I traveled. Uh, I should tell you I got sober in North Carolina. So that's why I keep saying there. Uh, and I had to travel back uh, to Ohio. And I was going through West Virginia. And uh, traveling through West Virginia, I got a good friend named George Darty up there. And he and I went to different schools together. And... Uh, so George has a meeting at 7.30 in the morning called the Mustard Seed Group. And uh, I, I said, okay, I'll be there. And, I, and then that day I went, and there was eight men there. <clears throat> and we were just sitting around in a circle. And, of course, George opened the meeting and everything and started out, and we started talking about different things. And everybody went around the room until I got to a certain point in it, and there was a stop at this man. He introduced himself. His name is Ted. And he said he was pretty worried. And he said that the next day he had to go in the hospital for a, three, for a bypass operation. And he just didn't, wasn't feeling good about it. And he, he just kept talking about it. And you could just hear the fear in his voice. And uh, after he went ahead and told about all his fear and everything else, one of the guys sitting about two chairs over from him, was a man that worked in a Ford garage. He was a mechanic because he had on that Ford uniform. And uh, he said, uh, Ted, he says, what time tomorrow are you going to be operated on? And Ted said, well, they got me scheduled for 8 o'clock in the morning. 
And this mechanic looked over and he said, Ted, i tell you what I'm going to do. He said, tomorrow at 8 o'clock, I'm going to ask my higher power to be with you and help you through that operation. I knew right then and there that step two was exactly the way it was written. I believe more than anything in the world that that higher power was with Ted the next day to help him get through the operation. I couldn't hardly stand it because I went to Ohio and worked. I was over there about five days for a trade show, and I had to come right back. And the reason I had to come right back and go to that meeting, I had to find out what happened to Ted. And when I did, they said Ted had came through the operation very well and was doing doing super. And I convinced myself then that uh, that higher power can restore me to sanity too. Uh, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to care of God as we understood Him. Make a decision. That's all it asks us to do. Make a decision. And I had known about making decisions because when I was in college, on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, there was a, we had a break from 10 to 11 that we could do anything we wanted to. And a couple of the guys that I ran around with, liked, we'd like to go downtown and, uh, and have a cup of coffee or a cup of hot chocolate at, at, uh, at McCory's because they had a donut machine. And we'd never seen one of those donut machines. But you'd fill this thing up with dough, and it'd pop out a little circle in this hot grease, and it'd go around, and it would turn that donut over, and it'd cook on the other grease, and then it'd kick it out. And then a girl would either put vanilla ice and chocolate icing or powdered sugar or something on it, and, you know, we could go down there for 10 cents and have two donuts and a cup of coffee. It also tells you how old I am. Uh, and we were sitting there one day, and we said, you know what we ought to do? We ought to put in a donut shop. And we ought to sell all kinds of donuts. Jelly donuts, all chocolate covered, powdered sugar, every kind of donut there is. We ought to sell every kind of drink there is. Orange juice, lemonade, hot chocolate, everything. And we said, you know, we could get a lot of people here in Charleston coming through and buying, and that we could be real successful. We all agreed that was a great idea. We went back to school, and two years later, Mr. Donut came to town. See, we made a decision, but we didn't take any action on it. And that's what happens to decisions. If you leave them laying there long enough, nothing's going to happen to them. And so I always say that what it asked me to do is I have to do what I refer to as the twin steps. And the twin steps are four and five, six and seven, eight and nine. And in one of those steps I prepare, and the other step I execute. So we're preparing one and executing the other. And so that's what I had to do. It said I made a searching and fearless moral inventory of herself. And the first thing we had to look at as our common manifestations was resentment. And the first resentment I ever had, and I want you to listen to this story. first resentment I ever had was against my father. I was about 10 years old, and one day we were going to school. He said, after you get home from school, I want you to call, cut Mrs. Robinson's grass. And I don't want you to take any money for it. And I got real resentful at it because my brother, three years older, 
He just went to school. And Mrs. Robinson had four grandsons that were could have been available to come and cut that grass. And I got really, really resentful with my dad because I had to do that after I got off from school. I couldn't go do what I wanted to do. Today I'm doing the same thing, aren't I? I'm helping other people without any getting anything in I did not heed a lesson that my father tried to give to me. That's a long time ago. Uh, admitted to God, to ourselves, and another human being the exact nature of a wrong. Uh, Slick uh, said, I want you to go home, and I want you to find a quiet place outside. Outside. And I said, all right. And he said, I want you to admit all these things to God that you have put on these papers. And I said, okay. By the way, I wrote 38 pages. I, I'm trying to hurry. I probably shouldn't do it. And so I had a lot to get rid of. And I said, okay. And so uh, I never ever asked him why he wanted me to do it outside, but I did. I sat outside on the patio and I, the nice light and everything. And uh, so I admitted all those things to God. And as soon as I got finished, of course, I... I called him up the next day, and I told him that I had done that. And he said, fine. He said, come back over. And I went back over to his house. And I said, uh, by the way, I said, how come I have to do it outside? He said, well, I, he said, I want you to do that under God's roof, not man's roof. Makes a lot of sense to me. So he said, well, what I want you to do now, I want you to go back to that same place that you admitted all these things to God, and I want you to admit all these things to yourself. But this time I want you to say them out loud so you can hear them. And I said, okay. So I went back to that same place where I sat, and I admitted all those things to myself out loud uh, so I could hear what they really was about. And after I completed, I called him up and told him. He said, well, fine, come over and let's talk. And then when I went back over, he told me, he said, I want you to call Clarence. That was his sponsor. And he said, I want you to go up and see him, and I want you to admit all these things to him. And uh, I said, okay. So I called Clarence, made an appointment. And would you believe the first thing that Clarence wanted to do was go out and sit on a bench outside under God's roof, not under man's roof. And I was able to admit all those things to him, and as I admitted him, he was making a list of all the character defects that he heard, and which there was quite a few. And... Uh, and after uh, I admitted everything to him, we sit there and talked a little bit. And it, it really was a lot of times a two-way street because there was a lot of things when I would say, he said, yeah, I said, you know, the same thing happened to me. And so it was really, really good thing that, that I felt, really felt good about. And then he said, well, here's some of the character defects I heard. He said, I, I hope, uh, you know, you're going to make a list of them, so this might help you along the way. So uh, I did, and... and uh, of course, Slick sooner, you know, found out that I'd completed my fifth step, and I called him up and told him about it too. And he said, "Well, come over a certain certain time, and we'll talk about some more." So, when Mac go to his house, and, and uh, he said, "Now," he said, "I want you to get entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character." And I just looked at him because, you know, I'd had the list of defects in my hand, and I had my copy, and I had you know, Clarence's cop in. 
And I kind of was holding him up, and he said, no, no, no. He said, I'm, you can't just have a list that you're going to ask God to get rid of. You've got to know why you have those. That's getting entirely ready. He said, hell, he might get a list and turn it over to God, but he said, what, you've got to tell God why you have each one of these character defects. And so I had to go back home, and I had to work at it and, and find out why I had these character defects, and I had to be very serious about it. And... Uh, so when I went back and talked to Slick about it, and I started telling him why I had some of these character defects, he said, now. He said, okay, now you can ask him to remove all these shortcomings. And I said, by the way, he said, do you think God's going to remove all these things from you? And, of course, I'm getting real cocky now because, I, you know, I haven't been talking back for a while, but I start saying, well, the book's, Refers says that, and he said, uh-uh, don't say it. It says, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Don't say he does. And uh, he said, do you think we have an Oral Roberts in AA? And uh, I said, no. He said, well, don't think God's going to remove these from you. He said, if you spent all those years developing them, you might have to spend that many years getting rid of them. And of course, I guess I, I kind of look went like that, I, you know. And he said, "Well, he said, I'll tell you what you have to do to make this step work." He said, "As you go out in life, and as these things come up in your life, that's when you work on them, and that's when you ask God's help to to work on this character defect." And he said, when you do that, he said, you'll find out pretty soon that they'll be gone. And he was exactly right. The only character defect I have today is probably road rage. Uh, There's a lot of times Nancy gets mad at me because I scream at people in cars. They just won't go when when the green light turn comes on, you know. And especially it's, it's terrible. I mean, if I'm the third car back... And they just won't go, and I get caught by that light again. But, it, but anyway, I can live with that if that's the only one I got. Uh, made a list of pers- made a list of, of all persons we had harmed, became willing to make amends to them all. Uh, I, we made that list when we made our in- inventory, and so Slick said the best way to do it is to just. Uh, go through my inventory and put down people that I can get to right now, you know. And he said, then, you know, uh, what you want to do is maybe make columns up there, and then if some come to somebody's name, you can't go to them right now, but you can get to them next, then put them over in the next column. And if there's somebody that you really can't get to now and you can't get to next, well, put them over here in the later column. And then uh, he said, if there's somebody you're going to really have a hard time making amends to, just put them over in that fourth column. And that's what I did. I had everybody down in columns. And I went around and I started making the amends. Now, I made up the list and I took it over to Slick. And he looked at it. And when he looked at it, he tore it up. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, well, from what I know about you, he said, you left a couple important people off that list. 
And I said, no, I didn't. He said, yes, you did. And, you know, that's when he called me a dumbass hillbilly <laughs> again. And then he, I guess he felt sorry for me, and they said, well, you did. You left two people off there. He said, you left God's name off there, and you left your name off there. And he said, if you can't make amends of those two people, all those other amends aren't going to be a damn thing. And he was absolutely right, because that is the two people that I had to make amends to. And so um, I got to do those, but I, don't get ahead of me now, because I did do God first. All right? Uh, but, you know, Slick was a good one for always showing up when I needed to do something. And as I say, I went pretty much that now list was gone, and then the next list kind of jumped over there, and I started making amends to them. And I finished those, and then the later lists moved over, and I made amends to those. And I was doing real good, and finally he showed up in a meeting one night. He said, how are you doing with your amends? I said, pretty good. He said, how about that guy you got on your... Never list. You made amends to him? And I said, no. And he said, well, when are you going to get around doing that? I said, I don't know, a couple of weeks or so. He said, uh-uh. He said, I want to know right now when you're going to make amends to him. And he, you know, he never acted like this before, but I felt like, well, uh, I better do what he says. I said, well, I'll make that amend next week. He said, fine, when next week? And I said, uh, I'll, I'll do it next Wednesday. He said, fine, what time next Wednesday? And I said, well, I'll, I'll do it at 9 o'clock in the morning. He said, fine, where are you going to make the amend? And I said, well, I'll go to, I'll go to his office. He said, fine, and you're going to make this amend next Wednesday at 9 o'clock in the morning over to his office. And I said, yeah. He said, fine. Uh, I said that because he was a traveling salesman, and mostly traveling salesmen are never in on Wednesday. And I really thought I had a lock on it, see? Uh, so I'm really worried about it anyway, I, you know, having to go over there, because this is an amendment that really I've done a lot of harm to this individual and also to his family. And it was one of those tough things that you just never wanted to really face. That was the kind of individual, if he's walking down the street, I cross the street. That's the way I was. Uh, so as Wednesday came, I got in my car and I drove over to where his business place was. And I was pulled in on the street. I looked. He had a parking place right beside his office, and his car wasn't there. And I just kind of said, well, see, there he's not there. I'll, get, I'll go in, and I'll say hello to his secretary. I stopped in, and I'll leave, and that way, you know, I made an attempt. And uh, <clears throat> so I didn't want to go in until exactly 9 o'clock because I knew Slick would figure out what time I got there. So uh, as I got about two minutes till, I got out of my car and I got up and I stood on the, on the sidewalk there and he pulled in. He gets out of his car and goes in his office. And I said, oh, my gosh. You know, so I started trying to figure out what I was going to say now. And about that time, he comes back out of his office. So I stopped again because I thought maybe he'd get in his car and he'd leave. But he didn't. He looked that way and he looked this way. And then finally he looked over and he saw me and he started walking towards me. I said, oh, my God, now here this is going to, you know, this is not going to come out very good at all. This, this because 
this is just going to end up in a big fight or something else. And he got about three steps from it. He reached his hand out and he said, Diz, how are you? And I said, pretty good. He said, what are you doing over here? And I said, well, I was coming over to see you. And he said, well, why don't you come on in? Let's have a cup of coffee. We went in and have a, said hi to his secretary. We said, I got a cup of coffee. Went in and sat down at his desk. We started chit-chatting a little while. And then pretty soon when there was an opportunity for me to go in, I, I said, well, one of the reasons I'm over here is because I want you to know that several years ago when we had that big disagreement, I want, I just want you to know I'm taking full responsibility for that. And, and I don't mean to blame you or anybody else for that at all. And uh, he paused for a little while and he looked up and he said, well, there's a funny thing. He said, my wife and I have been talking about that. And he said, we feel like that we had just as much to do with that as you did. And I didn't know what was going on. You know, we talked for a while longer. He invited me over to his house for dinner. And I walked out of there and I just could not believe it. Here was a, an amend that I wasn't even going to make. That was going to be disturbing to me the rest of my life. And yet it turned out to be the easiest amend that I ever made. One of the things we like to do after uh, going to a meeting is uh, we'd like to go down to Swenson's Ice Cream. We get Sundays and sodas and everything like that. And So one night Slick was uh, at the meeting and was going down to get some ice cream at Swenson's. There was about six of us going, and Jimmy Brown, who's a good friend of mine too, had this new uh, sponsee with him. And believe it or not, they was working on the, the uh, making amends, the nice step. And as we got our Sundays and everything and started eating them, then Jimmy was talking about suggesting some of the things to your new sponsor what to do. And then Slick said, hey, Jimmy, he said, if you want to know how to make direct amends, what you ought to do is let Diz tell you how he made amends. And I said, Slick, be quiet. Be quiet. Don't, you know, be quiet. And he said, No. He said, oh, Diz, he said, he had a guy on his list that he was never going to make amends to. And he said, I caught him at a meeting one time. He said, I just put him in the corner and I said, okay, when are you going to make this amend? And I made Diz tell me the day he was going to do it, the time he was going to do it, and where he was going to do it. And he said, once Diz admitted that he was going to, uh, accepted the fact that he was going to do that, then I said, okay. And I went home, and I called that guy up, and I told him that Diz was coming over to see him. <laughs> Sometimes we need sponsors' help to get things done, and I'm, I'm ever grateful for that because that man, that man and I today are pretty good friends. Uh, continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Uh, <clears throat> this is... One of those things that just uh, I need to say because I think it's it's also educational for all of you all. My son was a little league manager, uh, and he had a pretty good baseball team. And uh, he was also so very supportive of me being an Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, he called me one night and he said, uh, "Dad, when are you coming up?" To, you know, my grandson was playing. He said, "When are you coming up to see Drew play?" And also, his twin sister, Ashley, played softball. So I said, well, I don't know. I said, I'll talk to Nancy. We'll see when we get away. 
And uh, he said, there's something else I want you to do, too. And he said, why? He said, well, one of my little league fathers just lost his job. And he also, he and his wife are separated, and he's drinking an awful lot. And he comes around to ball games, and he's got whiskey on his breath and everything else. And he said, the other night I was talking to him, and I said, uh, you know, my father's been in AA for a lot of years. And he said, uh, pretty soon he's going to come up here. And he said, I wonder if you would talk to him. And uh, the man said, oh, I'd like to. And my, that's what my son, so that was really why we went up there. So Nancy and I cleared her schedule, and we, we drove up there. <clears throat> and as soon as we got in, I asked Andy what the phone number, what that man was. And he told me what it was. And I, I called, uh, I dialed the phone number. And it just rang and rang and rang. And uh, that night I tried it several times and, and there was no answer. Uh, the next morning I got up and I tried that phone number again, no answer. We went to some softball games and, and baseball games and watched the twins play. And, and in between I'd get go to a phone I'd call and there'd be no answer. So uh, Saturday night I called again there was no answer. And even on Sunday morning when we left to come back, I... I made two attempts to call, and there was there was not an answer at the phone at all. And so Nancy and I left, came back to Tallahassee, and I never I never really thought too much about it after that. And about two weeks later, my son called me up and, and was talking about uh, a few things. He said, oh, "Dad, by the way, you remember that man I wanted you to go see?" And I said, "Yeah." He said, "Well, he committed suicide." And you know. This book doesn't say anything about calling people up on the telephone. It says we're supposed to go see them. And I didn't do that. You know, I might have been the only opportunity that man had a chance to get sober. I'll never know. That's a burden I've got to carry around for the rest of my life. But then again, no one among us makes anything like perfect adherence to this program. I don't want you all to make mistakes. So that's why I'm willing to share that with you. Don't use the telephone to help other alcoholics. Go see them. Uh, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Uh, for a time, I lived in Virginia Beach. And uh, during this time I lived in Virginia Beach, there was a meeting I used to love to go to on Monday nights. And it was in a church uh, one of the church rooms. And when I went in there, this place was just set up immaculate. I mean, all the chairs were in a row. The coffee table had a tablecloth on it. There was napkins, doilies. Everything was out in sugar bowl, a uh, uh, cream bowl. Uh, it's just a beautiful setting. All the books were out, everything you wanted to do. And I said, wow, boy, this is something else. And I just looked forward to going to that meeting. I didn't get a chance to go to it a lot because sometimes on Monday nights I had to travel. And after I'd attended it for about six or seven months, I had to go out of town for almost a month. And so when I come back, I was just real anxious to go. And so when I go to this meeting, as soon as I walk in the door, I can't believe it's the same place because every one of the chairs are just scattered everywhere. You know, there's a coffee pot on an old tabletop just perking. No napkins out. No cream pitcher. No sugar pitcher out. No spoons. Just, you know, everybody 
paid for themselves, it looks like. And I was kind of disappointed. And that night before the meeting, I noticed there's some new faces in there, and, and the chairperson said that there's a gentleman who wanted to say something. And <clears throat> so the, uh, the young man spoke up, and he says, my mother used to be in charge of this meeting uh, for about two years. And she came over, and she got this room prepared every time they were meeting for a Monday night, and she made the coffee, and she set everything up. And uh, he said uh, last Saturday she died. She had cancer all those years that she was doing all that work. And he said she was really a remarkable woman. But it just got so that she just didn't have the energy to do anything anymore, and she couldn't even go upstairs to her bedroom. So her husband got her a day bed and moved it into the dining room and moved that furniture around so she could sleep in there. And so that's where she spent probably the last four weeks of her life. And this one night... <clears throat> Her husband went in to say goodnight to her, and she looked at him, and she said, Would you do me a big favor? And he said, Anything that you want. He said, Would you get me a double shot of whiskey and a cigarette and a lighter and put it on that table? And he said, Yes, I will. And he went and got her a double shot of whiskey and a cigarette and a lighter and left it on that table. And he kissed her goodnight, and he went off to bed. And the next morning when he came down, of course, he didn't, you know, see anything going on in the dining room, so he just went ahead and kind of turned lights on and opened up the blinds and everything else. And then after about 20 minutes, he went in to check on her, and she wasn't moving. He went over to, and, uh, and felt her, and she had died during the night. And he couldn't help it but look over on that table, and there was still that double shot of whiskey and that cigarette and that lighter. And I often wonder what the moral of that story was. Until I sit down one night and I said, that lady in her dying day wanted to exercise her choice towards drink. And she chose not to do it. Every morning I get up, I have the same choice. I can choose not to drink, or I can choose to go out in this world and just raise all kinds of holy hell. And I think I'm glad that lady made that decision. Step 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. The 12th step of Alcoholics Anonymous is our crowning glory. It's been around longer than any other step. And, you know, and I think we all use it well. There was a man that was walking down the street. It was kind of dark, and what he did, he fell in this big hole. And he started screaming like crazy for somebody to come by and help him out. And finally, a doctor came by and said, yes, I can help you. And he wrote him a prescription and threw it down to him. And the man said, this ain't going to work. I've got to get out of here. Somebody help me. And he kept screaming, screaming, and screaming. And pretty soon, another man walked by. He was a minister. And he said, well, my son, I'll help you. And he said a prayer for him. And then he got up and he started going his way. The man was getting desperate now. And he started screaming through the top of his voice. Please, somebody help me. Pretty soon this other guy come walking down. He heard this guy's plea for help. And he jumped down in the hole. And this guy looked and said, now you've done it. There's two of us down here. 
How crazy can you be? He said, don't worry. He said, I'm an alcoholic. He said, I've been here before. Give me your hand and I'll show you the way out. That's our 12th step. Uh, I think, you know, uh, when it comes around to responsibility, I think each of us have a responsibility to this fellowship. And I think it's very simple. I think when I'm gone from this earth, I think the one responsibility I have to do is to leave this fellowship exactly the way I found it. It doesn't need any Freudian complexes that I might want to do into it. You know, it works the way that the first 100 gave it to us. And I think that's the way we should continue to work it. And I like to say this, that God offers us His grace to come out of the darkness of alcoholism and to the light of sobriety. I'm grateful I made that decision. Thank you very much.